Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. I'm Jason Dick, Deputy Editor at CQ Roll Call, and I'm hosting this week while Bill is off. This Friday's roundtable of journalists will try to make sense of what has become an extraordinary congressional train wreck. It's not an exaggeration to say that there's a lot riding on the next month or so. The fate of the Biden agenda, the issues that will define the 2022 midterm elections, and who wins the majorities in the House and Senate, and oh yeah, the US and world economy. There are four things making this seem like a large pileup. Raising the debt ceiling, funding the government to avoid a government shutdown, passing the Senate's bipartisan infrastructure bill, and passing pretty much Biden's whole agenda in the Build Back Better bill. The truth is, is that government funding and the debt ceiling will almost certainly pass at some point, but it will be ugly and scary and down to the wire. There is another potential train wreck though, among Democrats on infrastructure and the Build Back Better agenda. Again, both these at some point will probably pass in some form, but what's in the Build Back Better bill tax hikes for the rich, spending on soft infrastructure, climate change, healthcare, childcare, all that is kind of up for grabs right now. It's a lot to go through, but the stakes are about as high as they get in Washington. Joining me today to talk about these topics and more are Maya King, politics reporter for Politico. Good morning, Maya. Good morning. Sarah Wire, Congress reporter for the LA Times. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? Very good. And Alex Rory, White House correspondent for McClatchy News. Howdy, Alex. Jason, a pleasure as always. Excellent. Uh, special uh, special shout out to Sarah and Alex joining us on the Bill Press Pod for the first time for the roundtable. Um, and let's let's start let's start with Congress. Let's start with you, Sarah. Um, what we saw this week was a lot of back and forth. Um, you know, we knew that this was going to be a, a, a significant week because for the first time in uh, since July, both chambers were actually in session. Uh, on on Monday and almost made it a full in, entire week uh, the, the <laughs> of uh, of uh, of week before some people headed for the exits. Um, but we were at a we're at this sort of area where there, we just don't know how they're going to resolve the debt limit and and government funding thing. Um, let's listen. We've got a clip from Mitch McConnell where he kind of lays out that. If the Democrats want to pass a debt limit extension or a debt limit suspension, they're going to have to do it on their own. Uh, they want to couple it with the, the government funding bill, but Mitch basically says that's not going to happen. Let's get, listen to that clip now. My advice to this Democratic government, the president, the House, and the Senate, don't play Russian roulette with our economy. Step up and raise the debt ceiling to cover all that you've been engaged in all year long. So no effort on their part to describe our position as irresponsible makes any sense. Sir, it seems like uh, the, the, the majority or the minority leader, Mitch McConnell there, is uh, sort of trying to head off some arguments that this is a shared responsibility. 
Uh, Democrats have pointed out that when Republicans were in full control of the government, they had no problem running up the debt in the form of tax cuts. And they also have supported a lot of the coronavirus relief uh, over the last couple of years. What, how is it that we are find ourselves in this position? Well, for Republicans, the longer they can keep Democrats focused on four different topics at once, the better off they are. Um, they know it's going to drag the process down and Democrats aren't going to be able to get as much done. Uh, you know, Democrats don't like playing games with the debt ceiling, but we've really seen in the last few years that Republicans are more willing to kind of step up to the edge of the abyss. And I don't see that changing this time. I, I wouldn't want to get into a staring contest with Mitch McConnell. He has no reason to blink right now. The, that's right, absolutely right. And I'm glad you brought up the, you know, the the sort of the negotiating patterns here too, because in general, um, you know, we don't see a lot of government shutdowns. We saw a, a couple during the Trump years, uh, another one back in 2013, and then there were the big ones in, in the 90s. But the Democrats usually don't use this as as uh, effectively. You know, they don't threaten government shutdowns, and they certainly don't threaten debt limit breaches. In the, uh, the the that's the Republican sort of viewpoint, and they seem very willing to deploy that. Whereas Democrats are like, well, we're obviously not going to have a government shutdown. That kind of puts them at the disadvantage right away, right? Yeah, I think Republicans reason that eventually Democrats will buckle and get this done. There's no way that Democrats are going to break the economy when they need it to succeed in 2022. Um, you know. Pelosi doesn't like votes that she's not going to win, but you know they're going to hold this vote on Monday evening for the debt limit and the uh, government funding through December. But you know this is the point in the year where they posture, and if we were having the same conversation in December, I'd be a lot more worried about a shutdown. And Alex, uh, one thing that we saw from the administration is that um, they, the Office of Management and Budget sent out a, a notice to government agencies that they should prepare for a shutdown. Uh, tell, us, tell us about this, whether this is something that uh, starts to set off alarm bells everywhere. Uh, it, you know, Jason, it, it, it obviously does. And I mean, Jen Psaki, you know, during yesterday's briefing, even acknowledged, and, and keep in mind, this is normally usually a, a very circumspect White House that does not like to acknowledge problems, even if they're obvious to the rest of us, but they are acknowledging that this would be a major problem. Um, and that it's it's even in the, the amount of bandwidth that it's taking, both from administrate, you know, uh, officials in the administration, but also throughout our federal government that they're having to think about this instead of say, just as a random example, combating the pandemic, right? Because uh, Jen Psaki again was asked yesterday, um, about what effect this could have on health agencies. In the past, health agencies have described previous government shutdowns, which have become kind of a regular part of Washington life over the last decade, um, as incredibly difficult situations um, for, for them. And that was when there wasn't a pandemic, right? Um, and so the White House has been clear um, that this is going to be a major problem, not just for the White House, but throughout the federal government, and they're trying as best they can to urge Republicans to reverse course and to work with them and not shut down government, to not breach the, the debt limit. Um, I don't think anyone's holding out hope that Republicans are going to be listening to them anytime soon. And I, I mean, what you said about, you know, this has become an almost semi-regular thing. I mean, the last time we really flirted dangerously with the debt limit, uh, Joe Biden was the vice president. 
he worked out a deal, not just on the debt limit, but on averting uh, several tax hikes and uh, government shutdown with with Mitch McConnell. Um, there, we're not seeing any evidence that there is this um, sequel to that buddy cop movie, right? Uh, with with Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden. I, it, it's funny when you think back to that time. I think it was 2013, and Mitch McConnell and Mitch McConnell's advisors would actually actively praise the president. Right. And, and call him an, an, a good faith negotiator, someone that they respected, someone who understood Capitol Hill. You know, flash forward eight years now um, in the first year of Biden's presidency, and it doesn't seem as if any of that goodwill has lasted. And it, we haven't yet seen a chance um, for the president to really work um, some of his, his magic on Capitol Hill in the way that we saw when he was uh, Obama's vice president. You know, we have sort of the makings of a bipartisan deal on, on infrastructure. We saw a little bit of it there. And if he's able to get that across the finish line, yes, you know, the president would have proved a lot of doubters wrong about his ability to negotiate on Capitol Hill. But I think, you know, this is the kind of the moment we're in, broadly speaking, Jason, I think, is whether or not, you know, um, Joe Biden, with his 36 years of experience in the Senate, um, can still navigate you know, a legislative chamber that has changed a lot, um, even since um, he was last in the Senate in 2009, uh, and maybe even has changed a lot since 2013, um, when he nego- he last negotiated some of these deals on behalf of the Obama administration. And and Maya, I mean, one one thing you know, I I just am always struck by. I mean, the, the as as you know, Alex mentioned, like these are these are sort of semi regular government shutdowns or the or the threats of government shutdowns, um, and and I'm I'm sort of nonplussed by them because they always do figure to get away, you know, through them. I, I wonder though, I mean, like you're you're surveying kind of the politics of this. Do voters care about this stuff? You know, um, I don't think so, but. It's it's kind of a, a yes and no answer for me, at least. Voters aren't following, you know, the ins and outs of Biden's negotiations with key senators on the Hill day to day, the ways that we in the ways that we are. But they will feel um, the impact of a possible government shutdown via loss of jobs and just the general um discomfort and discord that a government shutdown can cause. And at this time, the Democrats are trying to use passage of this massive um, piece of legislation to craft their message for 2022. If this does fail, they have a lot less to stand on heading into next year. And you're already starting to see, I think, uh, that sense of, of concern, even nervousness among party leaders around Biden's agenda and the ways that it's flailing in Congress. I'm not going to clear any of this dead on arrival, but you know, it's it's certainly not lost on me that policing and voting rights have kind of fallen to the wayside in Congress. Um, at the same time, that Biden needs to pass a massive infrastructure bill and keep the government funded. So there are a lot of different issues floating around that. Voters aren't really focused on right now. I don't get the sense that they are following this as closely. But in the next few weeks and months, as all of this starts to take shape and we're able to kind of look back on what exactly was accomplished this week and next, um, I think that's when we'll start to hear from voters. And it also is going to give Republicans plenty of fodder for a lot of their attacks um, and criticisms of this administration and of Democratic control of Washington. 
And and actually, like to to your point, uh, among the the group of senators that appeared with McConnell earlier this week to say that you know this is this is all on Democrats. They need to own this vote on the debt limit. We're willing to avert a government shutdown, but they need to do the debt limit on 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 their own. And we'll get to some of those complications later about how that would work. But Rick Scott. Uh, the Republican uh, uh, senator from Florida, who also runs the Republicans' campaign arm in the Senate, uh, he he was very like unabashed in saying like, "Oh, we're we're gonna we're just gonna nail Democrats with this. They are gonna own this, and we're and it's you see it in the messaging and some of the releases, you know, that people like us get right. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, but I mean, th- this is they have their this is part of the of the midterm strategy, at least for Rick Scott, right? Yeah, and it's it's a little bit disingenuous, right? Because Republicans have less con- they don't have a majority in Washington, but they still have a say and they still have influence on whether or not this passes. They've chosen to use that influence to say if the government shuts down, if this agenda sinks, we can just blame this on Democrats' control of Washington. But that's a really, um, at least in my view, as someone who largely covers campaigns and watches Congress as an influence on campaigns, I understand the um, the strategy. But at the same time, it's it's <laughs> it puts Democrats in this terrible position. But it also put, it makes Republicans just uh, look very much like this is their like their only goal is to win and not exactly to govern. And I think that is something that they're going to have to watch out for um, if Democrats indeed start to actually go on the offensive with their messaging. And Sarah, we've got, I mean, we've got until September 30th, you know, in, in this fiscal year. Right now, the the short-term continuing resolution, they call it, uh, to, to, that would fund the government just at its current levels. Uh, it, the, it passed the House this past week. It's, it funds government through December, and then it also contains the debt limit uh, suspension, and, as well as billions of dollars for disaster aid and to help uh, settle Afghan refugees. Um, that's now, you know, that'll get a, a Senate vote where it'll probably be blocked uh, early in the week. And then, and then where are we? You know, the, cl- the clock is ticking. We saw some evidence that uh, the, the senior appropriators in the Senate were meeting to try to figure out maybe plan B, another short term, different stripped down version. But where, where is all that? Is this going to make for a pretty like crazy week this coming, this coming one? I mean, I'm not making any plans on September 30th. I advise you not to do it the same. But, uh, you know, it's going to be a a bit of a crazy week. Like I said, you've got Democrats' attention split between these four issues. And obviously the government funding portion is the most pressing because it has the earliest deadline. I mean, Congress is a lot like a college student, that they work best under deadlines. And uh, so... I can see this possibly happening piecemeal. Um, you know, Democrats included the disaster aid funding, number one, because it needs to be done, but number two, because it can be a sweetener for Republicans, especially in southern states, who are hit hard for the hard by the hurricanes. Um, but it doesn't look like it's gonna be enough. It does look like they're gonna have to separate them out. And, and Alex, this this separation, this just takes time, right? And and the the Biden people know that, you know, they can't. Every week that they lose is another week that they're not, you know, sort of gaining on the these uh, the, the broader agenda of the of the infrastructure stuff. I mean, what's the? I mean, as you said, the 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 Biden White House doesn't like to 
you know, appear phased by anything. But they've got to know that, especially after August, which was just really kind of awful for them. You know, they, they dealt with crisis after crisis. Do they do they know? Do they even with a wink and a nod uh, to to you and your brethren in the in the press corps that this is kind of crunch time? You know, it's it's interesting you say that, Jason, because it's actually been remarkable to me the degree to which they are acknowledging that this is crunch time. Um, that that Gensaki um, over the last couple of days, in fact, in the White House press briefing will acknowledge that, you know, that, you know, presidents were elected to navigate crises. And she actually used that word crises um, yesterday. And that this is, you know, that they're not going to shy away from it. They're going to embrace it. And so I, I think it has really sort of underscored the stakes um, in Washington and for this administration that they're really even willing to acknowledge openly um, that this is, as you say, is going to be crunch time. And, and, you know, this is the the backdrop for the White House right now is that, you know, as you alluded to, his approval ratings have cratered in the last month. Um, he was down to 43 percent in Gallup. Um, he was down to uh, in a poll released this week. He was down to 44 to percent in Pew. I think it was roughly a 10 point drop from July. And it's a broadly felt drop. It's a lot of different demographic groups um, in these polls, including black voters, including even registered Democratic voters. Um, he's shown, you know, a loss of support there. And we can talk about there are a lot of reasons for this. It could be the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It could be the coronavirus p- pandemic. There is a behind the scenes argument going on right now, um, or at least a difference of opinion among Democrats about what what the reason is why his numbers are, are, are falling at this point. But um, it's it's a it's a point in the White House presidency that seems like it is either going to could, at least in the early part of his presidency, either define or derail his his presidency. That's the, the moment we've arrived at over the course of the next three, four, five, six weeks, um, how they manage all of these different challenges. Yeah, um, we're going to take a quick break, but I did want to also note that the uh, just this was like actually breaking this morning, early this morning, the Bipartisan Policy Center estimated that the uh, the Treasury Department will run out of ways to avoid a debt breach uh, sometime between October 15th to November 4th. Uh, and again, the, the Treasury Department has not said, given it any kind of date certain, uh, other than you know around the middle to end of end of October. The Bipartisan Policy Center, uh, you know, is staffed by people uh, like uh, Bill Hoagland, who's uh, maybe the foremost budget expert. So um, it is, it is this, it is this singular moment. Um, All right. We're going to take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick sitting in for Bill along with Maya King, Sarah Wire, and Alex Rory. Today's podcast brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers, the AFT under President Randy Weingarten, 1.7 million Teachers, men and women of America doing God's work every day in the classroom, pre, pre-K, K-12, through 12, and higher education as well. They're the ones who've been meeting COVID head-on, uh, first on the online classes for over a year, and now back in the classroom where they're keeping our kids safe and themselves safe by wearing a mask and making sure the kids do too. We salute America's teachers, members of the AFT, thank them for their great work and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. 
Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, we're back with Maya King, politics reporter for Politico, Sarah Wire, Congress reporter for the LA Times, and Alex Rorty, White House correspondent for McClatchy News. I'm Jason Dick, the deputy editor at CQ Roll Call. All right, um, we let's. I think we can move past a little bit uh, on on debt limit and government sh- uh, shutdowns. We've kind of given the broader parameters. We could really geek out on budget uh, stuff if we if we wanted to, but let's let's keep it uh, keep our powder dry uh, because it does relate a little bit to infrastructure. Um, and right now, we what we're doing, what we're what we're seeing is that we've got these two big infrastructure packages. Uh, that are linked. And, you know, for lack of a better terms, we'll call them hard infrastructure and soft infrastructure. The hard infrastructure is the Senate's bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, it passed earlier this summer uh, with, you know, notable bipartisan support. It's in the House now. And uh, once it got to the House, several of the members of the progressive wing of the, of the party said, we're not going to lend our votes on this unless you, you know, also pass the broad, this broader bill, soft infrastructure, you call it, that addresses climate change, health care, child care. I mean, a, a fairly broad sort of expansion uh, of, of the social safety net um, and, and, a, and a far more expensive bill to the tune of, you know, $3.5 trillion, uh, in, in some estimates. Um, you know, the, there's we've Maya, we've seen a lot of um, something that we don't normally see, which is uh, Republicans, uh, particularly in the Senate, lobbying their own colleagues uh, in the House to support a bill that the Democratic majority has control over. Um, you know, this, these are people like Rob Portman, Mitt Romney and so forth. I mean, what again, uh, the same kind of question about the debt limit and and um, and government shutdowns. What kind of what what sort of signal does this send to voters, and do voters respond to things like infrastructure? It's been a long time since we've seen a bill this big that addresses infrastructure, building bridges, and and so forth. But again, you know, is this is this a viable sort of campaign strategy? And and you know, does does good policy make good politics? 
I think good policy makes good politics in this scenario because you're talking about things that voters are really asking for and that makes you sound like a really good retail politician, like bridges and roads and potholes and um, and buildings and schools. Like These are the things that voters can actually respond pretty positively to. Early on in this debate around infrastructure, you heard a lot of Republicans saying that this was a way too much and way too expensive. And as you point out, you see a bit of an about face here now with more Republicans embracing this infrastructure bill, both because they need it, I think, in many ways to show to show for their time in Washington and actually um, be able to bring something home to their constituents. But also, I mean, even more obviously, the fact that American infrastructure is really in dire need of a, of a facelift at this point. This is probably one of the only instances where you can see um, some reasonable bipartisanship and some actual commitment um, to getting something done that has real tangible results for voters uh, under President Biden. And that's obviously a big win for Democrats because they're able to, again, craft a message around what they can bring to voters, excuse me, and also to Republicans who are able to show that um, they're willing to exhibit, I guess, some level of bipartisanship for this bill. The big question, though, of course, is whether or not it actually passes and how Democrats will be able to uh, smooth over their differences internally over the definitions of infrastructure, as you pointed out, hard and soft, and figure out just what this dollar sign is going to be on this package to actually get it through. One of the things I was struck by, too, this this past week is um, we saw Gary Peters, who's a, a Democrat from Michigan. He he won a pretty close race uh, for re-election in 2020. Um, he he was a little bit behind the eight ball uh, for, for quite a bit of the re-election campaign, but pulled it out. He is now Rick Scott's counterpart, in, but among the Democrats. He runs the Democrats' campaign arm. And he's one of those guys. That, I mean, I'm, I, I quite literally just stole his phrase, good policy makes good politics. Uh, I mean, and it seems like... Peters is almost, uh, he and Scott couldn't be paired better in some ways. I mean, Scott's going sort of for the jugular on things like debt limit and, you know, like starting to define, uh, you know, Democrats as being about the debt limit. And Peters is is this like, nope, we're going to organize and we're going to explain things to people and talk about the these issues. Um, and, and, you know, he got a lot of uh, good experience doing that in his reelection campaign. And in a 50-50 Senate, I mean, it's just, it, 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 it's weird. You just couldn't see, you, you could not script this any better in terms of like this, people will be given a very clear choice, it seems, uh, between, you know, like one, one party over another. And I think that's the most effective form of, of messaging at this moment when voters are really caught up in a number of different issues. Um, Democrats' calculus for the last few weeks has been that COVID is the big thing that's front of mind for folks still. That's what's going to mobilize voters. That's what's going to get them to the polls. But it's interesting to hear Peters, um, on the other hand, kind of slow things down and say, no, we're actually going to explain what people are getting in infrastructure. Voters can walk and chew gum at the same time, essentially. They can be worried about COVID, but they can also see what we're working on in Congress and let that be a motivating factor for them um, to not only put Democrats back in office, but expand their majority in the Senate. Whether or not this is effective, I'm not sure. But I do do actually believe that explaining things in clear terms, (laughs) letting voters understand exactly what they're getting in a lot of scenarios... Uh, works pretty well. Um, And I think that more Democrats um, 
would would want to consider this as a strategy, especially when, as we as we discussed even at the beginning of this show, um, the GOP is willing to pull Democrats in a number of different directions right now. That muddies the water. That that kind of obscures the message that either party is trying to send. But on something like infrastructure, it's a lot easier, I think, for politicians. Uh, to actually come forward and say, no, this is what we're pushing for. This is what you can get. And if they actually do push it through, it'll be very easy uh, (laughs) to point to a stronger bridge, a new road, a better school, um, actual physical infrastructure, and even some soft infrastructure as well, funding for public health, climate change, items like that, and say, this is what we were able to accomplish uh, over the last few months in Congress. It's just hard for Democrats now because they've tried to squeeze all of this essentially into a three-week window um, to actually get it passed. Yeah, and and Sarah, I mean, like we'll we'll see the first big test of this next week when I mean they there's they they made a the, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, uh, made a deal with moderates um, uh, that they would get a vote on this bipartisan infrastructure bill, the hard infrastructure bill, on uh, the 27th, which is Monday. We might see maybe some uh, movement on that. Who who knows if they get close? Um, but that that seems to the the the, the liberal the more liberal wing of the party wants the vote closer to the broader soft infrastructure package. I mean, is this just too much to to bite off. I mean, are we are we going to see that you know those two votes this coming week? Uh, well, according to Pelosi, yes. <laughs> uh, we'll see if it actually happens. Um, she's a little bit optimistic, I think, but uh, she's ordered the committees to work this weekend and start marking up that soft infrastructure bill. And, and you know, a markup just kind of means finalize, but that doesn't mean that that's the text that's actually going to pass in the long run. You know, the the thing the moderates are the most worried about is that they'll sign on to a much larger bill than the Senate is going to be willing to swallow. And that they'll be lambasted with that vote in 2022. Um, you know, Pelosi really needs progressives to kind of back off and give her some breathing room right now because she's she's got to mollify the moderates but also recognize that the progressives make up a much bigger portion of her caucus. Um, you know, it kind of goes back to what I said about Mitch McConnell and staring contest. I wouldn't want to play chess against Nancy Pelosi. She's uh, often far ahead of the rest of us, but it looks like she's going to try to at least show that there's movement on the hard infrastructure of this bill and hopes that mollifies the progressives a little bit. Yeah, I mean, she's only got three votes to spare uh, at any given moment because of vacancies and just like the close margins. It's as it's as close to a fifty-fifty Senate in the House uh, as as you can get almost. Um, and but but it also seems that like you know the the Republican leadership is trying to make it more difficult for her by whipping against the bill against the the, the Senate bill, um, which makes it all the more important for her to to shore up her own ranks. And then we've got this, you know, situation where like Rob Portman is making calls to people like, you know, Mike Fitzpatrick and or not Mike Fitzpatrick, Brian Fitzpatrick in in the Philadelphia suburbs, a moderate Republican, saying like you gotta, <laughs> you've gotta support this, and Don Bacon, you know, in Nebraska, you gotta support this. So it seems like the votes probably are there, uh, if if push comes to shove. But then you know we'll we'll just I guess we'll just have to see on the on the broader bill because it sounds like they really do want to get this thing going. Well, and in the broader bill, they've made a lot of promises to a lot of groups. And so they're 
balancing that of who are they going to let down, who thinks that they might have a once in a generation chance to get their priorities recognized by Congress. I mean, we're seeing this just in the child care portion alone. The amount of money that Democrats want to spend on child care is transformative, is what I'm hearing from the advocates. And the idea that they might not get this money could keep people from turning out in 2022. I mean, the people... I don't want to say that they this could be a determining factor in whether they vote, but I think Maya's really right that if Democrats have this to point to, they're going to be a lot better off than if they've got a lot of disgruntled, politically active advocates uh, who didn't quite get everything they were promised. And Alex, what do we know about like what the president's going to be up to the next couple of weeks? I, I take it there are no international trips on his schedule. <laughs> He's going to keep, keep close to uh, keep close to home here, huh? Well, yeah, I, you know, he is going to keep close to home. You know, they said after the series of meetings this week, this week um, with Democratic lawmakers, that those discussions will be ongoing uh, first at a staff level. I think it's a safe bet that the president um, is going to be personally engaged on this. And in fact, Jen Psaki has has made reference to the fact that. You know, now that we are close to the closer to the finish line on any number of the items uh, you, we've been discussing, that the president that it you know makes sense, it follows that the president would be more personally engaged on this. I think we are also going to see him. You know, he has traveled within the country um, to tout the the entire Build Back Better agenda. I think it's a fair bet, Jason. We're going to see that in part because of what Sarah and uh, and Maya are referencing you know, that he still needs to build support for this agenda, right, with the public. Um, he still needs to even let people know what's in the legislation. I think one of the problems, one of the challenges Democrats have had that in this three and a half trillion dollar piece of legislation, you know, if you just take the reconciliation bill, there are so many different items that it's hard to pitch it all at once, right? It's hard to really focus on any of the individual items because there are so many different programs that are getting funded. And we've even seen polling to the effect of, you know, it has public support. Um, but I think there was a, a Pew poll that came out yesterday that showed, yes, 49% of people support the legislation, 25% or so oppose it, which means a whole lot of folks didn't have an opinion about this reconciliation bill. And I think you see that when you talk to a lot of Democrats, that there still is a, a kind of a murkiness even among the politically engaged about what exactly is in this legislation. So I think as much as the president is trying to help negotiate on Capitol Hill, you're going to see him out and about in the country and possibly through the media also trying to sell this piece of legislation to the public to even let them know what's in the the legislation. Well, we will buckle up these next few weeks because, uh, again, you know, we, we won't uh, won't go into the extensive sports metaphors at our disposal. But you know, this is you know like crunch time, fourth quarter, overtime, you 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 name it. And uh, and I appreciate you all going through sort of step by step what's this weird, you know, kind of three dimensional chess that we're uh, that we're dealing with with the debt limit and the shutdown and the two infrastructure packages. Um, we're going to talk now. We're going to pivot away from some of the, you know, that that stuff to just a story that sort of spoke to us, uh, as as is our want here uh, on the reporters' roundtable. Um, Maya, let's start with you. Uh, what was the story that caught your eye this week? Yes. So I am again <laughs> looking at a story that came out uh, about two weeks ago, but it's new to me. 
Uh, it's a really great item in the Atlantic from Hannah Georges about how Hollywood's writer, writer's rooms look nothing like the rest of America and how that's impacted a lot of the TV that we watch, um, just because you have a lot of shows that depict Black families, but the writer's rooms are very white. And so it's this really fun, amazing look. Um, Hannah just gets all of these great actors and actresses who are kind of like canon um, in Black TV to talk about their experiences. Folks from Kenya Barris to Shonda Rhimes, um, who just are who have been held up um, in many ways as these these pillars of, of Black entertainment, but looks at how really new um, a lot of these creators are to actually running their own shows and depicting Black TV. It's a pretty long read, but I learned so much about it or about Black TV and learned so much from uh, Hannah and her reporting here, just looking at all of these different shows over the years. So if you subscribe to The Atlantic or um, get the magazine in print, it was the September cover story. So highly recommend you give it a long read if you haven't already. Awesome. Sarah, how about you? Uh, well, I'm a bit of a science nerd. So I have been enjoying uh, news of fossilized footprints discovered in New Mexico. Um, if they've been verified and it would move up the date that they think the early humans uh, arrived in North America to about 23,000 years ago. Um, my folks are in New Mexico, and so I'm, I'm fascinated to maybe get a chance to go explore White Sands National Park here next time I visit them. Excellent. Yeah, that is, uh, if, if anybody uh, is contemplating a trip to New Mexico, I must highly recommend being a, a former resident of the Four Corners area. It is stunning and unlike any place you've ever been, really. Um, no, that's that's very cool. Alex, uh, your story that uh, that really popped for you this week. Well, Sarah Maya referenced really great, um, important stories. Um, mine is that uh, they spotted another zebra in suburban Maryland. <laughs> Uh, this is a truly bizarre story if you haven't been following it, um, but the, a, a handful of zebras were released from Prince George's County um, inadvertently several weeks back. Our local delegate here in Washington, D.C., Eleanor Holmes Norton, has denied responsibility uh, for re- releasing the zebras, which really caught me off guard. I hadn't been following, but just yesterday, there's a story on the local Fox affiliate. Someone saw a zebra crossing the road as they were driving. And I can't imagine what my or anyone's reaction would be if I just saw a zebra prancing around my home. So that's that's my that's my moment of zen. I'm kind of on the side of the zebras in all of this. <laughs> I think we all are. Yeah, I'm kind of rooting for their for their freedom here. I'm just imagining you'll appreciate this, Jason, as a cinephile, uh, the scene in Michael Clayton when he gets out of his car and he's just staring at this serene horse in the distance. Yes. And instead of a horse, it's a zebra. So <laughs> yes, and, it's, and it's near Upper Marlboro. <laughs> yes, it's near Upper Marlboro. Upstate New York. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's the remade version of Michael Clayton. Oh, that's awesome. Um, my my uh, my story is is a silly one. Um, it is uh, for for those of you who are uh, literature uh, and and sort of modern novel. Uh, fans, Haruki Murakami is is you know among the the greats uh, among us, Japanese author um, and you know uh, the 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 writer of of novels like Sputnik Sweetheart and, and so forth, and Kafka at the Beach, and um, he had this great uh, essay that adapted from a forthcoming book that was in the New Yorker about 
the fact that he has too many t-shirts <laughs> and uh, Alex is uh, as somebody who uh, has worked with me for a while, you know that I do have a t-shirt problem. Um, it, and, and actually the, it, it was almost as if uh, I, I thought, Oh, now, now I don't get to write this book, but it is about his accumulation of t-shirts in strange ways and how he is running out of space to store them. And then, uh, and the circumstances under which he gets a lot of the t-shirts. And so the, the book has an, a sort of mini essay on each and every t-shirt. Uh, and the one that he, uh, adapted for the New Yorker was about his, his, I put ketchup on my ketchup t-shirt, uh, <laughs> that, that he acquired and what it says about Americans love of ketchup and so forth. And I just thought this is, this is truly, if, if he's speaking to nobody else in the world, he is speaking to me a man who is constantly battling the t-shirts rolling out of his drawers and, and closets. Uh, so I, uh, I, I highly recommend. And also like, I mean, if <laughs> all, all the stories that we've talked about by Sarah's and Alex, I mean, they, they just, uh, it, it, they're needed in weeks like this. <laughs> uh, Jason, I'm just, I'm just glad you have a new role model. It's good to see. It is a, it's a long time coming. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for this edition of the bill press pod thank you for listening and thank you to our panelists for their time and insight really appreciate uh you know you you, you hopping by the, the pod this morning maya king politics reporter for politico sarah wire congress reporter for the la times and alex rorty white house correspondent for mcclatchy news i'm jason dick deputy editor at cq roll call your guest host have a great weekend everybody